Okay, welcome to another episode of the Carolyn Click Middle East News Hour. I'm joined this week by my very good friend Dave Wormser in Washington from the Center for Security Policy and also from the Kohelet Forum here in Jerusalem. Hey, David, how you doing? Good. How are you doing, Carolyn? I'm great. I'm so glad to have you back on the show. Um, I'm gonna we're I'm gonna have uh, I've had I'm asked uh, David to be on this week because we're gonna talk this week about. Uh, Ukraine, and we're going to talk this week about the Iran negotiations. But I just wanted to start off with a brief update about what uh, I was talking about uh, with Gadi Taub last week, which is the uh, revelation in uh, in an economics newspaper last week in Israel that um, the uh, the uh, um, the police, with the guidance of the attorney general and the prosecution, had. Uh, apparently had um, penetrated with counterterrorism uh, military grade spy spyware into the cell phones and seized the cell phone data of 26 Israelis with uh, no criminal past, many of whom are uh, were advisors to Prime Minister Netanyahu or his sons. Uh, so it was part of the Netanyahu investigation, and there's no legal basis for doing this under Israeli law. There's no law that enables uh, the government to spy this way against Israeli citizens. So um, in the intervening week that has passed since Gadi and I taped the show last week, uh, we've had a series of, uh, of denials and admissions, denials and admissions, denying that there was anything criminal going on, admitting that they used spyware against one person or two per people or three, and they're up to five now, uh, and then denials that anything ever happened and certainly that nothing was criminal. In the meantime, Netanyahu's uh, trial has been suspended for the rest of the week. It's supposed to start next week. The state prosecution hasn't been able to come up with an explanation to the judges uh, that's anything more than pro forma, and they're supposed to bring more detailed explanation by next week. Uh, we'll see if that happens. We'll see what happens, but we're all watching this space very closely. Obviously, the parallels between this story and the most recent disclosure from uh, uh, Special Prosecutor John Durham about the fact that uh, Hillary Clinton's campaign hired a technology company to eavesdrop not only on Trump Towers, uh, during the 16 campaign, but also against the executive offices uh, of the pres of the president uh, Trump in the White House, um, are stunning. The parallels are stunning. The spying that was going on, and in the in the efforts to criminalize uh, a sitting prime minister here in Israel and the sitting president, first candidate, and then sitting president in the United States, and also the disastrous impact this has had on Israeli policies towards, towards Iran, towards the Palestinians, towards the United States, towards any number of other things were uh, with Netanyahu as prime minister, his ouster, and the largely incompetent foreign policy being carried out by the Bennett-Lapid government. And on the other side of the Atlantic, uh, the same sort of thing where you had a successful, uh, more or less uh, foreign policy on many, many levels from uh, President Trump and now you have a serial loser, uh, Biden, who, as Robert Gates said, never saw a foreign policy issue he couldn't get wrong, uh, doing just that as president. So um, we'll talk more about this probably uh, next week's uh, show. We'll be giving you an update on where this stands. But in the meantime, I want to turn to David. Um, what do you make very briefly on the Israeli spy scandal and how, uh, and its parallels, of course, to what we just saw about uh, Hillary Clinton spying. Uh, 
There's a couple things. First of all, it, 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 the excuses remind me of the of the guy who stood trial for murder out west once, and he said, "Listen, I was 500 miles away. I, I, uh, I, I didn't know the guy at all. Uh, and besides, I really liked him. So why would I do it? So it's one excuse too many. Uh, <laughs> it, it sort of sort of gets you to where you need to be in understanding this. So that's uh, that's why that's one. For those who are more high-minded, they could." turn to Shakespeare and you know the lady doth protest too much so you know from Hamlet so it's uh definitely there's there's enough fire there not only smoke so it's what's striking is how similar it is to the United States it's it's and I think it it goes to what is really the malady of the left here which is they are so convinced about the righteousness of their cause that they really have turned the corner and they allow the means to to be subordinate to the ends uh, America is all about process and fairness of process. And this was, this shows how much America is changing and how much Israel's changing. Well, Israel used to be this way a long time ago too, under, under when labor was in control. Uh, but it, it shows the danger of politics where process is subordinated and, and, and uh, instead you get people who just think they're correct, they're right, they're moral. And, and to save democracy, you have to suspend democracy. You know, it's so funny because I, I was uh, I was just thinking about it the other day that you know that the left always says that Israel's Jewish character somehow or another contradicts its uh, democracy and that, that what they really want to protect is Israel's democracy or Israel. There's a Israel's Israel's also our um, our enemies and our adversaries are always saying that uh, there's something inherently anti-democratic about Israel being a Jewish state, but just on a very basic level, the overwhelming majority of Israelis are Jewish. The overwhelming majority of Israeli Jews want this to be a Jewish state. And so uh, just sort of by, by natural occurrence, uh, the more democratic Israel is, the more Jewish it is. And what we're seeing here is that um, you, know, you have a government now that's fundamentally anti-democratic because you have some breakaway politicians from two parties that presented themselves to voters as right-wing parties who ran and made a, a, a governing coalition with the left, the far left and the Muslim Brotherhood Party. Um, and they formed the most radical uh, post-Zionist um, uh, government that Israel's ever seen. And so we see that the anti-democratic nature of the government also makes it uh, not Jewish, far less Jewish, and they're undermining the Jewish character of Israel. So I think, you know, that's true too. But I think that that what we're seeing here, what we're seeing in the United States, and I would argue what we're seeing in uh, in Canada with Trudeau, is that you have these elements that have taken control that are very much of the ruling class that are fused with a lot of the uh, bureaucracies that that control government, um, and they're forging policies that they think um, advance their own power. And they're doing so at the expense of their country. And I think that here's a good place to shift to Ukraine, because I think there's no country that's been more involved either directly or indirectly with the whole Russiagate controversy than Ukraine. Um, you saw that uh, then Vice President Biden uh, had his son uh, get a job and uh, on the board of directors of a Ukrainian um, energy company called Burisma, which ended up being at the center of the Trump impeachment uh, trial or proceedings that he was impeached for and then he was acquitted in the, in the Senate trial. 
Um, and, uh, and, and the Ukrainians sort of made a play with the Democrats and, the, and they helped the Democrats try to criminalize Trump. Um, and now they're kind of paying a price for it because they thought that they could trust the Democrats and it works out that they can't. But you want to speak to start our discussion on Ukraine and the Biden administration's very strange policy of, uh, of, of sort of uh, beating the drums of war on Ukraine without any real play for war in the United States and what the relationship to that and all of the things that we're learning now about uh, how the Hillary Clinton campaign and the federal bureaucracy, the FBI, the Justice Department, were behind this blood libel against Trump claiming that he was a Russian agent. Yeah, I mean, there's so many things to unpack here. Uh, you know, first, uh, pick two, yeah. any two. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I think at the end of the day, one has to, one does have to remember that that it is Putin driving this with some degree of, of tension uh, surrounding this huge military exercise, potential invasion, etc. So ultimately, he's acting more aggressively, but then one has to really ask a number of questions to follow on from that. So I'm, I'm not buying into the into the camp that says this is all some sort of an American uh, whipped up uh, scandal or, or crisis uh, to, uh, but that doesn't mean there aren't a lot of elements here. And that one element is uh, clearly, I, I think uh, the administration likes, it, it sees it almost as a fortunate thing uh, because uh, there really is no good news for this administration anywhere else. And this helps them divert attention. There's only so many dogs that uh, Biden could buy and advertise that there's a new new dog in the White House. Uh, so they were running out of these, these public interest stories. So they needed something more serious. So certainly they're seizing on this. It's real, but they're seizing on this. The second thing is, um, you know, whether Putin will invade or not, that's a, that's a big question. And I don't think anybody really knows. I, I don't trust our intelligence, not in terms of their lying. I, I think there's a lot of decent intelligence officers in the United States who are telling the truth. But in terms of interpretation, the, uh, you know, I was, I was telling one friend, uh, the Chinese are playing Go, the, the Russians are playing chess, and we're making shakshuka. Yes. So, uh, you know, it's, it's our strategic sense and our understanding of our opponents is, is so uh, base, so uh, uninformed. I mean, it's so, so self-absorbed and unable to put ourselves in their shoes that I don't think we really know what Putin will do. And all this thing about Wednesday, he'll invade, Tuesday, he won't. But I, you know, I, I just find that very hard to believe that we have such granularity on his inside thinking. So that's the second thing. The third thing is there is clearly a historical element here in terms of Burisma, as you mentioned, and corruption. Uh, the, uh, the Democratic uh, administration under Obama, there were some really bad things going on with Hunter and some other things. Uh, you know, at the epicenter of that is, is Tor Tory Newland, who's now Deputy Secretary of State. Um, or assistant secretary, uh, no, deputy secretary of state. So, you know, there's- Under there's secretary of state for policy, right? Wendy yeah, exactly, that? for policy. And mm -hmm. she is, she, she was one of the key, she was a NATO ambassador uh, uh, at, at the end of the 
Cheney admin, uh, Cheney, when she left Cheney's office and went to under the uh, Bush administration. And then she, uh, she was in the, all these various European positions uh, and then spokes, spokeswoman for the State Department under Obama. She's a, a central player here and she always has had this thing with Ukraine. Uh, ever since the, the Russians were there and, and, and so forth. So there's, there's all sorts of historical issues here. But one of the things that really has to be understood is there was severe corruption. Biden, in some bizarre way, admitted it, that he forced the uh, resignation of a prosecutor who was investigating his son. Uh, he used his foreign policy power as the vice president to force the, the shutting down of an investigation of his own son in a foreign country and used and held up aid to do so. So first of, so first of all, right there is, is a scandal in and of itself. The second thing that's so amazing about that is it was Trump that began to reverse that and wanted to rearm the Ukraine and build it up. So here you have this story of Russian collusion uh, which turned out to be a hoax. Ukraine, which turned out to be a scandal, with it, which involves the current president and his son. Uh, Ukraine being weakened by these behaviors by Biden. And now we find in our, ourselves in a position where Trump's policies to try to help Ukraine get itself on its feet militarily and so forth were stymied. Uh, by by the uh, by the Democrats essentially. So now, here we are with a fairly weak Ukraine, uh, a, a, so a Russia that looks at the United States as flailing and no strategic image, uh, no strategic concept. Uh, it's a prescription for an invitation for a Russian uh, aggressive behavior, whether it's threatening or threatening enough to cause a coup or threatening to go in to invade. I don't know for sure. But this is almost an inevitable result of these sequences of events from the scandal to the weakness to the stymieing of Trump's attempt to send weapons to the Ukraine to, to now. You know, I think that you're right. And I think that the other aspect of it is that, I, I mean, I just don't see how, <clears throat> what cards the United States has to play. And what's so odd is the rhetoric coming out of the White House, because um, if you don't have a lot of cards to play, then your best, I mean, then you have your best bet, uh, you have two of them, as far as I can tell. One is to not make a big deal out of it, because you don't want it to turn into a defining moment, since if it defines, if, the, if, if this becomes a defining moment, then it's a defining moment about your weakness. And the other thing is that you would want to try to cut a deal that makes you look good. And the person to cut the deal with would be Putin and they're, and they can't. And I want to center on the first, on the second part first, because I think just as a segue from the Clinton uh, spying on Trump and the Burisma issue and the first impeachment of Trump over Ukraine is that, you know, the United States I think both sides clearly see that China is the largest looming threat, a rising threat against the United States, its global position, and its national security. Um, and the best person to have tried to co-opt and work with would have been Putin. The United States also could have tried to co-opt uh, Putin in some sort of a business arrangement you know, that, that would have served both sides in relation to Iran going back to 2015. 2016 and of course 2017 when Trump came into office. 
And that was Trump's concept. That was a concept that Mike Flynn had been, been talking about as well, is that they wanted to try to make some sort of a deal with Russia to push back against Iran uh, beginning in Syria. And what happened with this whole Russia collusion lie about uh, Trump that Hillary Clinton made up with her campaign and some of the people who are now senior administration officials with, with Biden is they made it impossible uh, for Trump to reach out to Russia because he was already being accused of being a Russian stooge, a Russian agent. Um, and so if he had actually gone ahead with his plan to make a deal with Putin, then he would have been uh, fanning the flames of, of alleging that, uh, falsely claiming that he was a Russian agent. So that that sort of took Russia off the table as a possible uh, partner under Trump. And now having spent the past five years demonizing true, uh, Putin and anybody who makes a deal with him, and demonizing Trump as an as a stooge of Putin, even though he was putting sanctions on Putin across a whole range of issues, um, the the Democrats won't do that. And I mean, Biden, like you know, Biden may end up having to make a deal with Russia, but uh, it's not it's not a palatable option for them because they painted themselves into a corner on Putin. So uh, that's how I, I read it anyway. W what do you make of my thesis? Yeah, no, I think I think you're right. Look, the only problem I have is Russia, namely, uh, Russia will make a deal with us if they think we're worth making a deal with. And unfortunately, right now, our behavior is so pathetic, that I'm not sure it's worth Russia's time or effort to, to enlist us for anything, because they can get away and do whatever they want. Anyway, they don't need our approval. Um, in terms of power, they do, uh, you know, we're still a very powerful country here in the United States, but power is meaningless if there's no will or vision to use it. So, and the Russians understand that. So for, for them, we're a flailing non-entity at this point. So there may be areas in which they may want to still make a deal with us, but the truth is they don't need to in most areas. They can dictate at this point. And that's, that's, the, that's the only thing I'd slightly differ with you about. In terms of interests, look, there, there over the last decade, there were many interests that we could have and should have pursued more, frankly, going back a decade. I thought in North Africa, there were a number of things that could have been done. I believe that with Iran, there are fissures between Russia and Iran and places like Syria and so forth that could have been exploited more. I believe that uh, fighting uh, uh, Sunni-based uh, Islamic extremism was something we could have worked a bit more with them on. Uh, I think there's a whole series of areas where there were things that, that could have been done. And unfortunately, we didn't. And I, I think the Russia hoax so soured our relations with Russia that Putin you know, Putin has, is not, doesn't share our sense of morality. He has his own vision of things. So there are lots of things which are distasteful or that we can't, we can't go along with, but there are areas in which we could. And I think that soured those areas that we could have. And then on top of it all, we end all this uh, behaving in such a weak and flailing way that, that not only can we not find common ground to cooperate with Putin in, but he just dismisses us. And then, and, once, and then, and then we—that's how big wars begin. I don't know. I mean, you're right, and I want to talk about the possibility of a war, a significant war breaking out here. But before I do, I, uh, before we before we turn to that, I want to talk for a second about 
what American options are, because as I look at it, I, I don't really see them. I mean, America does not have a real option to start having a shooting war with, with Putin over Ukraine um, at all. I mean, I, I don't see it. He is a hundred thousand, he has the, his force projection into Ukraine. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it, it dwarfs anything that the United States or, or NATO would, would uh, be willing to muster. So I don't see a, a military confrontation there. And, and, uh, and I also don't see that sanctions against Russia would be that useful. I mean, they're sort of an autarkic uh, uh, economy. They don't, they, you know, they make all their own, they make all their own energy. They make all their own weapons. Um, I mean, I guess food, but they can probably get that from other places as well, including in Europe. Um, sanctions against them would hurt, would hurt Europe very much, you know? Yeah, they can get it from Ukraine, by the way, if they take Ukraine. It's so there you go. Big, it's, I mean, you know, by the way, that, that's one uh, minor thing that nobody, not minor, it's major, but but it's it's a very subtle thing nobody is really picking up on is the amount of the third world that is fed by grain from Ukraine. Uh, there could be a global uh, food shortage uh, that emerges from this. But, you know, it's all about trajectory. If the United States were respected and powerful like it was say coming out of the cold war then our threat of of encouraging an insurgency in the ukraine would be a credible one because people in the ukraine would assume in the long run that we would win so they would want to be on the side of the winners uh you know we always uh, read in the, in the books by sharon and, and sharansky had always said that when the prisoners of conscience in the soviet union or heard some of the speeches of Reagan or heard about the speeches of Reagan, they became much more resisting of their captors uh, because they knew the United States was going to win. And they were confident that in the long run, that's the side to, to stick with. So, uh, you know, Ukrainians, you could theoretically see a Ukrainian insurgency if they had faith in us to support them. But I don't think they do. I think they know that tomorrow we wake up and all of a sudden we're so desperate for a deal with Iran that we'd sell the insurgency out in order to cut a deal with Russia on Iran. And it, so, so they know they're just a pawn and people don't die, don't sacrifice themselves for the cause of being a pawn. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that takes that threat somewhat off the table. The second thing that I think is taken off the table here is, is the value of the United States overall for anybody, including the Russians. You mentioned China here. You know, if we're powerful, we may be useful for Russia and China. And China, because we may be, the Russians may see some utility in bogging down in Taiwan or so forth. But if we're really weak and there's no hope of us showing any strength over anywhere, and Taiwan falls, then, then really the Russians, like the Saudis now with, with Iran, they will have to make their peace with China and they're not going to try to leverage us, which offers nothing to do that. So I, I, think, I think you've got a lot of problems. Then about the sanctions, you know, at the end of the day, the American people, I don't believe have taste right now for a big war, whether that's inherent or not, I don't know, but certainly the leadership 
of the United States under especially the Democrats has encouraged Americans into a sense of pessimism and a non-specialness of America. And we're just another country and that we're, we're wrong anyway and that we caused the Iranians to hate us. And it's our power is essentially why people don't like us. So there's a sense of a pessimism and a sense of self-blame for everything. And so Americans inherently sort of retreated back under this, this message and say, okay, fine. You know, why are we out there sacrificing our kids and our money and everything for the sake of wars that aren't getting us anywhere if our elites aren't willing A, to win and B, don't believe in us. So Americans right now are not in a mood for war. And moreover, nobody's connected for Americans how any action in Taiwan or in Ukraine or so forth affects our way of life. And I think that's a big failure of the American political elite. They have not made the case as to why American superpower status is inherently important to our way of life. And as a result, a lot of Americans are thinking, what do I have with Ukraine? What do I have with Taiwan? What do I have with any of this? With Israel, we, we can live happily on our cell phones and so forth here without any, we don't need these wars. We don't need to sacrifice anything for being in the Middle East or so. So there's a real problem in the United States that our elites have completely disconnected foreign policy from the way of life here. And uh, now you're seeing the breakdown. I think you're right, but it's also just, I, I mean, I, I think it's also just, that there's a sense that it's futile, right? I mean, I, I don't yeah. know whether it's all the kind of anti-Americanism or whatever you wanna call it of, of the progressives that keep drumming in, drumming this idea uh, that America is not in particular, not special, there's nothing particularly special about the United States or that there's any particular reason why they should be the, that the Americans should be the global superpower, the most powerful nation on earth. Um, but there's also this sense of futility. Look, you know, yeah. we went to Iraq and we went to Af Afghanistan and thousands of American soldiers and, and, and Marines and airmen gave their lives for these wars. And, uh, and in the end, we lost them. Um, and, yeah. so, and, and we squandered their lives for nothing, for worse than nothing. And, and you know, trillions of dollars that we spent on these wars that got us nowhere. So now we're talking about going to war against Russia. I mean, we, we, we couldn't even defend America, you know, we couldn't even defend against the Taliban that are, that are you know, that behave as though they're in the, they're, they're in the eighth century and, and we're gonna go after the Russians. We, we can't beat them. I mean, and, and why would we even try to beat them? Because say we do, we'll stay there for five years and we'll come back with our tail between our legs and, and we'll pay, we'll pay for our enemies, you know? So what's the point? Yeah, look, we're talking really tough on, on Ukraine, but we haven't deployed any troops to Ukraine. We're not going to deploy troops to Ukraine. We're not going to fight a war in Ukraine. Uh, we're deploying troops to Poland. We're, you know, essentially we're reinforcing NATO, but that's not the same. Which isn't even threatened, right? I mean, Putin doesn't have threatened. any, and it, not, he's not threatening we're, Poland. Right. You know? They right. might as so well be sending troops to to to. To Okinawa, I mean, so, in response to uh, troop buildup in in Ukraine, what what is right. it? What is this joke? So we're making a bizarre sort of spectacle of taking, sort of drawing a line on the sand on Ukraine, but then signaling very clearly we're not willing to defend it. So I mean, whether it's wise or not to defend Ukraine, we're not going to. So why are we making the line in the sand something we're not willing to do? That's very dangerous. 
that's that's talking loudly and carrying a twig. It's not, not even a, carrying a twig. I mean, you took the twig yeah, off the table yeah, when you said we're not going to use military action yeah, to, exactly. to, to defend and, Ukraine. So what are you talking about? And, then? and by the way, you mentioned sanctions. You know, here we have this bizarre situation where this administration has shut down every intra-Western pipeline of hydrocarbons, oil and gas, almost anywhere it can, whether it's Keystone or so forth. Now, two weeks ago, it announces it strongly opposes the Israeli natural gas, the Israeli Cypriot and potentially Egyptian Israeli Cypriot national natural gas pipeline to Europe. Right. And yet you had the Americans turn around. First of all, this administration working against Ted Cruz, who wanted to put sanctions on Nord Stream 2 the Russian pipeline to Europe. And then only two months ago, you had the American government basically saying, hey, you can't stop Nord Stream 2. It's a, it's a fait accompli. There's no way. Uh, so here you have this bizarre circumstance where we're allowing the Russians to have all this access to supplying energy to the West. And we were shutting down all Western forms of self-independent of, of self, uh, production. So it, that's bizarre. And then, I, yeah. and then they went, after they said, Israel, you can't pump your oil to to Europe, yeah. uh, I mean, your you gas to Europe, to they said, oh, but Qatar can. Qatar, yeah. Iran's best friend, the Muslim Brotherhood's best friend, Al-Qaeda's best friend, ISIS's best friend, they get to, they get, you know, major non, non-NATO ally status while they're one of the most profligate and prolific uh, state sponsors of terrorism in the world. And they're getting a, a major non-NATO ally status, and the Americans are saying, "Oh, thank you so much for 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 sending more of your your gas to to Europe for us." After we already made it impossible for ourselves to send the gas to them by cutting off all our pipelines and all their. I mean, by the way, I would add to that the pipeline they're talking about from Egypt to uh, to Syria uh, you to know, help you know, Iran. To help, to Iran. help Iran. And then, you know, you get, you get the administration was sort of caught in a lie where they said, well, no, I mean, Assad's not going to get any money out of this. Uh, well, actually, he does get a little money out of it. Yeah, but it's not real money, but it is real money. And, it, you know, it, it, again, it's if it's our enemies, there seems to be a strange indulgence. If it's our allies, well, that's it. We're drawing the line. Uh, it's, it's uh, you know, we're, we're justifying it in terms of environment. Uh, but you know, so then you go down these other possible sanctions and you really wonder, OK, is the United States really going to go through with this? Are we willing to pay the price for all of this? And I think the answer at this point is I doubt it. I mean, I think the Russians know that. So I, to me, all these threats, the Russians have gamed it out. They've thought it through. And I don't think they're, they're impressed. And I don't think that it took much powers of uh, discernment to be discern to of discernment to be able to figure out that no you know that that Biden doesn't have any cards in this round, and therefore it's not even worth trying to play with him. And, and what do you you know people are using this overheated rhetoric about World War Three and we're going to World War Three, and well. Who who's fighting in World War Three? And I mean, do you see Putin um, actually invading Ukraine? I mean, what would he gain from it? It was really stunning to me that the uh, German cam- chancellor said yesterday, we're taping on Monday evening. I think it was on Sunday. He said, "Look, you know, uh, 
Ukraine should just uh, accept a position of, of, you know, the modern day equivalent of Finland in the Cold War, where they are able to have their internal democracy, but, um, you know, they, they don't have an independent foreign policy, that they follow Russia's lead, just as Finland followed the Soviet Union's. Um, and what was stunning about what he said was that he was quoting, without attribution, an article that Putin wrote last year, um, where Putin was talking about Ukraine and their dispute and said that uh, in accordance with the Soviet constitution from 1922, you can leave the Soviet Union if you want to, but you know we have to agree on the terms, sort of like a divorce. And so he was giving the terms of divorce for Ukraine based on the Soviet constitution that incorporated Ukraine at the request of the Ukrainian, I think, uh, uh, government into the Soviet Union. Um, and so, you know, he, he's trying to reconstruct these uh, ties from the Russian Empire, from the Soviet Empire, with all of these states that were either part of the Soviet Union or part of the Warsaw Pact. And, um, and, and here is the German Chancellor, who's a member of NATO, who's a key member of NATO, uh, parroting Putin's line. And as, as if it's this is now Germany's official policy. So Germany is lobbying for Putin or acting as Putin's surrogate while pretending to be an American ally and acting in concert with Biden. But basically what we're seeing here is that simply by placing 100,000 troops on the Ukrainian border, Putin has also exposed NATO as an empty shell. And it's yeah. not clear to me how it survives this either yeah, without think, firing a shot. Yeah, you know that I, I think people have to focus on that, that without firing a shot, Putin already has registered a tremendous victory. Uh, of course, the other thing that worries me a little bit is our own rhetoric of an imminent invasion. Even if, even if we're sensing it, we should be careful about talking about stuff like that because it sort of traps Putin. I mean, for him not to act now, the more we talk about, oh, he's going to invade on Wednesday, uh, and they're literally saying that they're saying they're, that he's they're literally saying Wednesday. Yeah, Wednesday. yeah. right. Uh, I mean, you know, if he doesn't attack on Wednesday, you can bet that President Biden and others are going to turn around and say, ah, look, we showed them, we deterred them. We showed the worst thing you can do is tell somebody like Putin, you see, you were weak and you had to back down because that ensures that he has to act. So, well, it's funny because Jake Sullivan actually said so much on an interview with Jake Tapper over the weekend where he said, Jake Tapper said, well, how can we uh, believe everything that you're saying about Putin and, you know, that he's going to be doing using a, a jeunes uh, provocateurs uh, to pretend that uh, Ukraine is stirring up trouble and then give themselves a uh, causes belly for invasion. And you're not giving us any proof. And he said, well, you can trust us because we're not trying to go to war. We're trying to prevent a war. Oh, I see. Is that what's happening? That's So that's really interesting. You're using this overheated rhetoric that is painting Putin into a corner. Um, and then you're saying you can believe us because if, if we prevent the war, it's because we've been issuing these warnings while we've been demonizing Putin. And again, you know, everybody runs the risk of sounding like uh, when when you criticize Biden and what he's doing and playing with an empty with an empty hand and all the rest of it, you know he's uh, doubling down when he's not holding any cards. Uh, that oh well, what are you pro Putin? Well, uh, no, but I have to admit that 
Putin has earned my respect over the years by simply playing whatever hands he has incredibly well and improving his hand from round to round. You know, he has done all of that. Is he a moral actor or an immoral actor? He's an immoral actor, but you know what? So is Joe Biden. So I don't know. I mean, it, it's very difficult to feel at all angry at Putin for doing what he's doing when the Americans are the ones flailing around and screaming for war. You know, it's I think crazy. It's, it's crazy absolutely. how easy it is to side with Putin here. And and just one last thing on this. You know, you're what I'm sure you're watching American uh, media much more intently than I am. I don't remember ever hearing so many people, um, not only on the right, really calling into question the credibility of of the State Department, of the White House on issues of war and peace before a war has even started. Usually, you know, I mean, you get it from the code pink before the Iraq invasion and stuff like that, but we're talking about Matt Lee from Associated Press, Jake, Tucker, Jake Tapper from CNN, and not to mention, obviously, Tucker Carlson, who's been attacking this from the very beginning. But I mean, you know, these are not marginal voices, whether you're on the left or on the right, saying, questioning the information, questioning what, why the United States is so angry with Putin also. Um, these are things that, that well, don't generally uh, bode well you know, for wars. You know, the truth is under the Obama administration, there was such dishonesty on so many levels in foreign policy and in domestic policy. Things that suddenly went away, whether it's the IRS scandal or or all of a sudden we find all these secret clauses in the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, I think what's happened is America's becoming a low trust society slowly, which of course is the greatest tragedy of all because America was a high trust society that believed in its processes and its government. America always had a lot of faith in its government, uh, even though it wanted limited government, it still, it had faith in what limited government it had. And what you've had here is it's been slowly whittled away by Washington elites to the point now where even when they're telling the truth, it's not always clear to the American people that they are. Uh, I have no idea what the truth all is on, on uh, Ukraine, nor do I fully trust the intelligence community to analyze it correctly. I've seen too many mistakes analytically by the intelligence community to, to at blind faith trust what they say, not, not out of ill intent, but simply out of being wrong. But on top of that, you do have a breakdown in trust right now. You, and the whole Russia hoax, Russia collusion hoax, and the involvement of Ukraine and the involvement of Tucker, of uh, Hunter and, um, and Biden and the corruption surrounding Ukraine and so forth, it, it, there's a lot of things that lead you to wonder and say, you know, is this all clean? Are, are we getting a clean picture here? Is this all out of pure intent? And th that's the greatest tragedy, I think, at all, of all in America is, is, the, uh, is the reduction in faith in, 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 in our own system that we're too many people now are not willing to accept our word against Russia's which is a horrifying development, but an understandable one on some level. Uh, maybe if they knew more about Russia, they'd know they should never trust the Russians on foreign policy. But that said, it's a breakdown in faith in our own systems. And what, how do you horrifying. see this playing out? I mean, you know, like I said, we're taping this on Monday on, on Valentine's Day on February 14th. And 
you know, this will this this uh, show will probably uh, go go live on on online on uh, Friday, uh, the 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 what's going to be the eighteenth, um, and so where do you see this playing out? Do you do you think that Putin is going to invade? No, I really I really don't know, uh, but I I think that if he doesn't invade. Uh, Biden will say, you see, we deterred him. Uh, we were so strong, great foreign policy victory, but nobody will buy it, neither in Europe, not in the United States. They know that it had nothing to do with that because they know we have no real options to deter or stop Putin if that's what he chooses to do. So I think at the end, uh, that, that would be a wash for this administration and Putin will have scored somewhat of a victory because he will have shown the weakness and exposed the fissures of, of NATO. He could do maybe what the administration accuses him of doing. Maybe they are telling the truth and they have evidence that they're going to do some per, uh, um, false flag operation to justify an invasion, uh, maybe in the framework of, of de-escalating tensions and right then do something like that, which we do see today some statements from Moscow of, oh, we're about to end our, our, our exercise. So, so, you know, that could be in which case, um, intelligence will come out looking good, but what will happen? America will be exposed as weak because we really don't have any options and we haven't prepared any options and the trajectory of American power and the credibility of America is so shot that um, it'll, be, it'll show us as weak. The other option is he just gets up and invades and uh, same, same result. So there's no good result here anymore. We've painted ourselves into an inherent defeat. I agree. I, I couldn't. I, I I couldn't agree more. I I also. I mean. I I I I don't think that it's likely that he'll invade because it's just why why pay the price when you've already won. But yeah, if he, if but he if has he, designs, if he has designs on Ukraine, I think it's more likely. And you know, by Friday, I could be proven to be completely a fool here, but. I think it's more likely he either goes for the Finlandization option or B, that he puts so much pressure on that he uh, and, and, and uses his subversive capabilities to launch a coup uh, rather than a direct invasion. But uh, or maybe it's a limited one in the far southwest, uh, southeast. Uh, but I, I don't know. I, I don't see him taking all of Ukraine at this point. And he doesn't need to in order. I mean, to that's the whole point is that I think, you know, <laughs> I was reading this article in the National Interest, which was written by, I, I don't remember his name, but he's from the Quincy Institute. So, you know, he's hes not a good guy just by virtue of the fact that he's at the Quincy Institute, which is a Soros-backed, yucky, pro-Iranian, pro-anybody who hates American place, but and certainly anybody who hates Israel place. But um, he, he did say something that I thought was interesting, which, and I, and I didn't, I didn't have the opportunity to check the veracity of it, but he was saying that, uh, in April, that this whole thing started in April after Ukraine was doing war games with with NATO, and that they were gaining gaming the liberation of the Donbas area that that Putin uh, that Putin um, conquered uh, earlier on. I think I don't know when was it in 2012 or something like that. But uh, but. Um, that that Putin began his buildup after that, and so he was claiming that the side that had precipitated this 
was Ukraine with NATO in this April war game, which I I I didn't like I said I didn't verify it. But if that's true, then that's also pretty incredible because if you're if you're making making Zelensky believe that you're going to be with him if he tries to uh, retake control over an area of Ukraine that that Russia conquered, um, then uh, then you really are playing with fire, right? Yeah. Again, you know, we're we're talking loudly and wheeling a wet noodle. Um, in the end, in the end, what it is is uh, we we signal we're going to extend NATO into the Ukraine, essentially, which tweaks the Russians. But there's not much they could have done about it if we did. But then we didn't do it. So Russia now threatens and 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 tries to threaten us into conceding that, which then we don't want to concede, even though we're not willing to do it. So we're kind of again, painting ourselves into a corner. You know at the end that if Russia threatens enough and we're exposed as weak enough, again, this administration has no real bottom when it comes to negotiations. So I'm pretty sure they'd, they'd concede that in the end, but we will have gone quite a ways in saying never, absolutely not. We're going to make a stand. And then we give in. Well, That's you know, on... On that on that happy note of of Biden's uh, negotiating uh, skills, I think that we should move to Iran, and what's happening with Iran. Um, uh, I mean, we're now at the who cares what number round of negotiation? I think eighth, but it doesn't really matter in Vienna, and it seems that the bottom has indeed dropped out, if there ever was one, to America's uh, negotiating position. They don't seem to have any red lines. Um, and they, uh, they're, and the Russians, the Russian uh, ambassador Ulyanov was one of the, uh, one of the mediators between or go-between intermediaries between the Russians, between the Iranians and the Americans in Vienna, saying, yeah, it looks, uh, looks good. It looks like we're going to be getting a deal. We're going to have all of the delegation heads put together, and we're going to try to try to finalize something uh, in the next couple of days. Um, and. Um, you know what? What do you make of what's happening in in Vienna and how concerned well, first of all, about, about the Russian angle? Can you imagine after the invasion of Poland, when uh, Britain uh, the, and, and and Germany were formally in a state of war, Britain would have turned to Ribbentrop to help negotiate an extraction of British interests in the Far East against the uh, Japanese? I mean. There's something utterly surreal about this. Yeah. We're turning to somebody we've just defined as a mortal enemy right. to save us with one of their allies. Right. I mean, what are they thinking? The same thing two weeks ago when we appealed to the Chinese to help us with Russia. Uh, you know, <laughs> there's something almost comical here. Uh, as far as the deal goes, you know, my big question is, are the Iranians stringing us along until they cross the threshold? Or, uh, or uh, you know, we're trying to move as fast as, po as possible to preemptively surrender everything to them. And the Iranians, ironically, are stalling on, even on that, perhaps wanting to cross the threshold before that. So uh, either way, we get to the same place, which is a complete breakdown. This, this, uh, this negotiating team in Vienna, led by Robert Malley, I mean, you know, when three State Department officials are either re either resign or are forced out because they're too soft, I mean, too hardlined, you're in trouble. I mean, if the State Department is your hardline wing that has to be fired, 
that's obstructing you, you're, you're in real trouble. So I, I, I think what you have here is Robert Malley is determined to make a deal at any cost. He doesn't see Iran as a threat to what he believes the Middle East should look like. And as a result, you know, this idea that we're going to hold up the line on anything, we're not. Iran is, uh, and maybe Mali knows that, that there's no deal there either, but he's willing to let the Iranians stall until they cross the threshold. I think there are real questions emerging here about the honesty about uh, what Robert Malley's portraying, the state of negotiations. And by the way, there's precedent for this. He lied about, his, about what happened in Oslo. Right. He's not a person who has a track record of honesty in portraying his diplomatic skills. No, I agree with you. And, and you know, I wrote in Israel Ayom uh, last Friday, and people can check it out on my blog, carolynglick.com, Caroline um, something really startling happened <coughs> last week, which is that um, uh, Zawad Javad Zarif, sorry, uh, the, the, who was Iran's foreign, foreign, foreign minister during the 2015 talks, uh, published a memoir of the of the negotiations uh, that led to the JCPOA in 2015. And he pointed a finger at, at, uh, at uh, Mali's underling at the International Crisis Group, a guy named Ali Vaez, and essentially said that he's an Iranian agent. And um, that also incriminates Mali. So just very quickly, what Zarif wrote was that in 2014, Iran put together a draft agreement of what they wanted the the of what they wanted the nuclear deal to look like. And just remember, back then, the American position was that Iran should not be allowed to continue to enrich uranium, among many other things. And suddenly, the JCPOA and um, allowed them to. So, so, so Reef wrote that in 2014, the Iranians had put out a draft deal that they wanted, and they were trying to figure out how to turned that deal that they wrote, their draft, into the basis for negotiations. So they handed it over to the International Crisis Group, this Soros-funded think tank, um, and to their desk officer, a man named Ali Vaez, who I think is a son of Iranian emigres to the United States. Um, and then he published a paper under the uh, aegis of the International crisis group calling Iran and, and the P5 plus one, the permanent members of the, of the Security Council of the UN plus Germany, those were the parties to the negotiations, solving the, solving the nuclear Rubik's cube. And this paper that Vaez published for the ICG became the basis of negotiations that led to the JCPOA in 2015. Zarif claims that that paper was just a laundered version of Iran's draft agreement. And Vaez gave it to his former boss, Robert Malley, who was a senior member of the American negotiating team in 2015. Um, another thing that we have to bear in mind is that today, along with the Russian advisor Ulyanov, the other, in, the other intermediary that transfers messages between the Iranian delegation and the US delegation, Mali, in Vienna, is Vaez. So he has a semi-official position as the intermediary between the United States and Russia, the two delegations in Vienna. 
And Zarif himself said that he acted as a Russian agent. The Russian state media refers to Vaez as Zarif's protege. So I know that following my article being published, a number of senators uh, began uh, taking an interest in, in what Zarif wrote about Mali and Vaez, and, and hopefully somebody's going to be, you know, looking into this. But, um, you know, that I think gives you the state of mind, because although the International Crisis Group denied it, the fact is that the track records of both Mali and Vaez have been consistently uh, vituperatively uh, pro-Iranian, vituperatively. Boy, it's late tonight in, in Israel and I'm getting all of my language wrong. Um, but uh, they, they've been vituperative supporters of, of Iran and canceling all of the economic uh, sanctions against Iran and bringing Iran in and, and koshering their nuclear program. So I think you're right. You're, you're looking at something that's both incompetent, you know, just as a measure of how much this advances America's new, uh, national interests and also uh, perhaps uh, pernicious. Yeah, you know, I when you look at the terms of the Iranian nuclear deal, the JCPOA of, of 2015, uh, something having negotiated with Europeans and having negotiated uh, on the issue of, pre I, can't, I can't say I negotiated previous uh, nuclear deals with Iran because I opposed them, uh, so I didn't negotiate them. But like the EU three letter, and and from 2003 onward, when I was in the, administ the Bush administration. I was involved with a lot of that stuff. And one thing I always noticed about the Iranians was they were perfectly willing to concede things that their program naturally needed to pause on. So if they needed to stop the centrifuges and figure out what was going on wrong with the centrifuges, they would offer a pause. Uh, they, in other words, they conceded non-things. When you look at the Iranian nuclear deal, it is almost perfectly a representation of where Iran's program was at that point, which was they had a certain amount of nuclear material, which they really didn't need because the real name of the game was the introduction and building and construction of new next generation centrifuges. And under the nuclear deal, they were willing to concede a stockpile of uranium which everybody in the West said, oh, we've taken a 12 month, whatever uh, timeline and made it 20 months or I don't know what the timelines were, but the Iranians didn't care because the new centrifuges could recoup what they were surrendering within weeks and or, or lowest months. And, and isn't it just, just forgive me if I remember, just technically uh, the, the military use of uranium that's in, been enriched to low grades, like 3.5%, is not very high, isn't that correct? No, it's not very high, although it is about half the work to get there. It is, okay. But yeah, because it isn't the- So they were giving away something that was still valuable. It was slightly valuable, but it was not anywhere near as valuable as the ability to have sanctioned the construction of new generation centrifuges and replacing them, replacing the old ones. Mm -hmm. There was a point in the negotiations which were already inherited from the previous administration, that when we're talking about a new uh, freezing of production of centrifuges or centrifuge uh, activity, 
it was it was rated by the amount not how many centrifuges you install but how much uranium could be produced by the centrifuges so if you have one that can produce 10 times as much uh, you know having one of those in exchange for one of those uh, you've just suddenly increased your uranium production by tenfold and you haven't given up you still have one centrifuge right so that's what the iranians were doing they had worked secretly to perfect and to get the kinks out of these advanced centrifuges that could produce at multiples, many multiples, faster production of uranium than the centrifuges they had and were installed. But they had a problem. If they started building them, let alone installing them, that would trigger a whole series of reactions by the West, by Israel, let alone yet another whole layer of violations of the NPT. So what happened there is they basically said, you know, we're willing to give up this limited stockpile, which is anyway only at 3%. So it's, you know, we'd still have to enrich it to 90 plus percent, which involves a lot. So they were willing to give that up so that they could have the construction and the and installing of these advanced generation centrifuges. And now breakout. In other words, they traded an op, a, 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 a stockpile that was of limited use for a complete breakout capacity. And that, that was their strategy. So they conceded nothing. And well, they I got don't understand why. I mean, and this goes back to Mali, right? Because you're, right. you're I mean, so you are, you're really, killer. you know a lot and you are a scientist and you understand this very well, but you're not the only person who does. And, yeah. you know, other people could have figured this out also, that Iran was not making a real concession and, or, and in exchange for making it, it was getting something far more valuable. And yet the United States went forward with this deal, pr pretended that it was a nuclear nonproliferation deal when they sold it to the Senate. And now they're trying to reach a deal that's even worse than that. Yeah. So, you know, they had to have known that they were doing this, right? I mean, there's no oh, they, way that they did they it. More than that, they had to have known that this was essentially an Iranian-tailored deal. It's, this, is, this deal is written to some extent in Tehran. And, and so it doesn't take- That's what Zarif says, right? He says right. that, that, right. that Mali laundered the deal for them, that yeah. Mali presented this as something that came from a credible, objective outside source when it was actually- it actually emanated from, from Zarif's office in Tehran. By the way, I want to mention something that this administration sort of is falling back on, the previous administration fell back on to justify the deal, saying, okay, look, we know it's a flawed deal, it's a problem. But you know what? It's better than nothing because right now they've got this capacity and what are you going to do? You're going to strike them? No, you're not going to strike them because that's World War III, the apocalypse and all life on earth will end, which is essentially the way they kept portraying any Israeli strike or American strike on Iran for some God unforeseen reason. I want to remind people, Iran is part of the NPT. It got nuclear technology by being a member of the non-proliferation treaty. It would never have had this technology, access to this technology or training in this technology had it not been a member of the NPT. It has obligations under the NPT. What the JCPOA did is it took Iranian cheating of the NPT and it sanctioned the cheating as a cutout. If the Iranians walk away from the deal, if there's no deal, 
Iran is obligated to return to the terms of the NPT, which are a thousand times stricter than the JCPOA. So no deal means the NPT is back in effect. It doesn't well, mean, I oh, we got free and no controls. I think that that's certainly what, I think that maybe on a formal level, that's correct, but it's a question. Is it still in, in force or not, right? I mean, the no, European, no, but the Europeans refused to say that they had to apply the snapback sanctions from uh, from yeah. the UN Security Council because they claimed that Iran wasn't technically in violation of the deal or or that the United States was no longer a party or or what have you. But they were their view was that the that the deal was still in force. And why is this important? Why am I making this counter counter uh, claim? Because one of the one of the explanations for Iran's behavior, their delay of signing an agreement in which or acceding to agreements in which in which the Biden administration capitulates on all fronts, is that they don't need a deal anymore. They don't need a new deal. They have no interest in a new deal because yeah. non-enforcement of the of the sanctions of the Trump administration sanctions by the Biden administration has enabled them to make so much money in their oil and gas exports that they don't they don't feel the pinch anymore. They don't really care as much about the sanctions. EU three policy since two thousand three has had a one and only one purpose, which is to take away the reason for an American or Israeli strike on Iran. Their whole worry was that America or Israel would, would take preemptive action against Iran's nuclear program using the legitimacy of, of preemptive self-defense based on Iranian violation of the non-proliferation treaty. So Europe's fundamental policy is that the NPT treaty is no longer the reference for judging Iranian behavior and holding Iranian obligations to account. <clears throat> and that is unfortunately under the um, Obama administration and then also under the uh, Biden administration, the policy as well. So while Iran is legally obligated and no deal means that Iran has to return to the most strict controls possible, uh, in effect, Western policy is, well, that's not going to happen, so give up. And, uh, well, that's a failure of Western policy and Western elites. Mm -hmm. it, it isn't legally required in any shape or for the opposite. It's legally required to go back to these strict terms. So, yeah, I mean, I think you're right. The Western policy is essentially, well, we have no will to do anything, so we have to make a deal. But, of course, once you've signaled the Iranians you have no will to do anything, then uh, don't be surprised when you're taken for a ride by the Iranians. I don't know. I mean, I guess I guess we're kind of wrapping up here, and uh, and and the real question is, uh, I mean, I guess there are two questions that arise from here. One is, what do you think is winding the Biden administration's clock? I mean, do you think that it is perfidy? Uh, do you, I mean? Biden may be demented, but he has a lot of people around him that are actually pushing these policies. And do you have an, ex an explanation for what they're doing? And the second question that I guess we have to end, which is, you know, what can be done uh, by a, a follow-on administration when you have this kind of roller coaster of American policy where the Dems are in charge and they give up the store and the Republicans come in and uh, they try to take back the store and it's, uh, but nobody knows and no, everybody understands that U.S. policy changes from end to end the minute that another another uh, party is in power. 
Well, I think the Biden administration has its anchor ultimately in, in domestic politics, which is a whole world of itself here that is dangerous and a not, a hap not a very happy story either, to be honest. But the progressive side of the Democratic Party, some of which are outright communists, like uh, Congresswoman Bass, uh, or you know, closet communists like uh, Ocasio-Cortez and Presley and or Islamists like Ilhan Omar or God knows what Rashida Tlaib is and Jamal Bauman, but whatever. At the end of the day, these are people with a very strong agenda that is anti-American. Right. And so they use the administration as a vehicle for that. And, and, uh, and I think that's where the uh, real story of this administration comes. It's in, in, its, in, in, it, in its appointments which were uh, essentially the left tolerated the existence of a um, ostensibly traditional democratic administration if it served as a vehicle to implement their agenda through the appointment of appointees that, that carried that agenda through. And when you look in terms of foreign policy, civil rights policy, education policy, energy policy, uh, uh, just across the board, uh, the administration has a veneer of being old classic liberal, which which I wish it were. Uh, you know, I I think America was healthiest when we had two strong functioning patriotic American parties right. vying for power, and what we have here is essentially the veneer of the old Democratic Party being the vehicle for a very dangerous anti-American. Uh, um, uh, crowd uh, that using it as a vehicle to achieve its agenda. And that's the foreign policy story here. I, I think you're right. And I think that the veneer is very, very thin. And I don't think anybody sees it anymore. I think that people are no. seeing past it now. And you can ask about Ukraine. Uh, Ukraine was never that you know, uh, Europe is not that important an issue to fight over for the progressives. So they were kind of willing to throw that away. And moreover, they're willing to use that. So no, 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 you see the Democrats are still a party of standing for our in interests and our power. And so I wouldn't look at anything we do on Ukraine as a sign of our foreign policy. They see the real battle is Iran, China, uh, Russia per se, Venezuela, they're out for uh, undermining all our allies and making the point very clearly, it's fatal to be an American ally. It's not to be our enemy. And where do you think that this, where do you think that this can go? I mean, uh, I, 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 I spoke with our colleague and friend, Victoria Coates two weeks ago about it. And she was talking about various things that Congress can do uh, if the Republicans win the midterms, but, um, you know, the, the problem with U.S. credibility, I fear, is here to stay, because so long as the Democrat Party remains uh, anti-American and guided by their anti-American elements in foreign policy, it's not likely to change. I mean, do you, what, what, what happens, you know, how do, Ameri how do Republicans say, well, we'll get them next time? When, when you, after an Obama, you get a Biden, you know, you get a Trump, you get a Biden. Well, you're sitting in Israel, and I would say the same to somebody sitting in Japan, South Korea, India, UAE, uh, Colombia. You're on your own. And it's very dangerous right now to have the illusion, illusion really, uh, that America is there for you. It does not have your back. It won't have your back for the foreseeable future. Even when 
there's a reaction to this domestic and foreign policy uh, uh, craziness, frankly, that has gripped America. Um, and there will be a reaction. You will see it, I'm sure, within a few months, and there may be even a deeper one in, four year, in three years, et cetera. But underneath, America has lost its youth. It's lost its education system. It will take, if we can get ourselves back on track, it will take a generation to re-moor ourselves back to the great greatness, excuse me, that America was. Um, so for the foreseeable future, it is critically important for our allies to band together and reinforce each other to essentially replace American power wherever they're they have, and you know, I keep hearing about uh, the Israeli government still trying to convince the American government or hoping for the white horse from America to come. It, the cavalry isn't coming. It's it's not there. I well, wish they can come. They're America. too busy fighting global warming. You know, I mean, that and we're too busy happen. having a lack of faith in ourselves. Yeah, we're too busy fighting global warming and, you know, we're going to beat Russia with diversity and critical race theory. I mean, you know, we're, we're out to lunch. I mean, to, honestly, America right now is out to lunch. And, and, and it's, it's so important for Israel to understand this is the reason why Zionism was, was, arose and why Israel was created, that when it really matters, Jews have control over their destiny. But that means you have to have control over your destiny and not wait for the Americans to control it for you. Well, I, I think that that's correct. I, I actually worry as well about uh, US national security. I mean, you, yeah. you, you, know, you, you're, you invite aggression against you when you behave in such a truly lunatic way and your foreign policy makes absolutely no sense. I, I, I can't imagine how happy they must be uh, in the capitals of America's enemies today, looking at this fiasco, which is Biden beating the drums of war when he doesn't have any weapons, he doesn't have any troops, he doesn't have any plan, he doesn't have any generals, and he doesn't have any reason to go to war. Uh -huh. you know, I mean, it just, it's amazing. No, but we have a lot of race theories to wield. That's true. You know, well, the people that they're going to war against again, I get. I mean, you're right. They are waging a war, but they're waging a war against the people, the American yeah. people. So we will pay a price. Americans will eventually get it. The question is, the price we'll pay until we do. All right. Well, we're going to have to have another conversation about uh, about uh, how American allies, and specifically this American ally, you know, Israel. How, how we weather a post-American world. Uh, we're, we're not looking at great scenarios here. All right. Anyway, I appreciate it. And uh, I see that the, the State Department is saying that uh, there are forward uh, Russian units that are moving towards the Ukrainian border and based on American intelligence sources. And so that may or may not be true. And it may or may not mean that Putin is invading, but if uh, he does, he was invited to do so by Joe Biden at a press conference just a week or so ago. So, you know, what can we say? Sorry, Ukraine. Uh, weakness, weakness starts war. Weakness, and it doesn't matter if it's Ukraine's weakness or America's weakness, but it's basically everybody involves weakness except Russia, which is projecting strength. All right. Okay. 
that just, oh, one last, one last thing before I tell you all, you have to subscribe and share this and everything like that. All the people who say that there are no military solutions to military problems, well, here, look, Putin has a military solution. He created a military problem by putting 100,000 plus troops on Ukraine's borders. And look at that. He's going to have a military solution. And he'll have a military solution even if he ends up leaving without firing a shot, because his military force that he put there, that hard force, no soft power, actually forced the issue to conclusion. So this is a military, military adventure that may lead to him not, that is projecting force sufficient to mean that he may, obvious, uh, he may no longer have the need to use it. So I think that this is a word to the wise to all those who would like to believe that there's no point in having military force and that you know diplomacy is just as strong as uh, cavalry, it is not. But diplomacy based on the cavalry can be quite powerful. Right, David, would you agree? Totally. I mean, the idea that there's no military solution to things uh, begs historical knowledge. <laughs> I mean, World War II was quite a historical event and quite a decisive conclusion that was entirely military. And that was the decision at the end of the war, which is there will be no negotiation in any way of the terms of surrender. It will be an abject surrender. In other words, a complete military solution. World War I ended when that was obvious that that was what was going to happen. Frankly, most events in history decisively end through decisive military solutions. Okay. Well, listen, on that happy note, having just shown that the United States is making a fool of itself in Ukraine and mentioned the fact that its chief envoy, a negotiator for Iran, has some very, very uh, suspicious direct ties to the Iranian regime. Having just shared all of this important information, um, I urge you to share this, uh, this uh, show with everybody that you know, watch it, listen to it, and of course, subscribe to our channel. So thanks so much, Dave, for doing the show with me today. I'll have you back on very, very soon, I'll betcha, if you have time for me. Uh, so that uh, we can we can go on with uh, with your strategic analysis of what's happening here. I appreciate it very Thank much. You. Thank you.